This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. The world's leading expert on near-death experiences is here in Hour 1, Dr. Bruce Grayson. We'll discuss some of the latest evidence and studies concerning NDEs. Coming up in the second hour, Understanding Biblical Ages and the End of Days with Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we are live streaming tonight on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. Please hit that red sub button. Now, before we get rolling, I just I have to mention this. I've been champing at the bit all evening. So at dinner tonight, we're uh, seated around the, the kitchen table, and uh, the mighty Aphrodite casually mentions... Maybe she'd like to get rid of the microwave. And we only use it to make uh, popcorn and to reheat coffee and, you know, warm things up occasionally. And it takes up a little too much space on the kitchen counter. So we're not big fans of the microwave oven. And then a couple of hours later, the mighty Aphrodite is emptying the dishwasher and she's washed that big glass round dish you know, the one that sits in the microwave and it spins and spins around. It's kind of like a, a lazy Susan. Anyway, she goes, she takes it out of the dishwasher, dishwasher and she, she goes to put it back inside the, uh, the microwave. She opens the door and the microwave light doesn't come on. And then she notices the, the digital clock on the microwave isn't working. It's not lit up. The microwave is completely dead. Maybe it's the outlet, she thinks. So she plugs in the tea kettle and uh, it has a, a blue light on the tea kettle when the when it's plugged in and it lights up. It's fine. It's not the outlet. So she tries plugging the microwave into another outlet. Nothing. It's dead. It is now a an ex microwave oven. It is deceased. So you know, like two hours Earlier, she said, let's get rid of the microwave. And now, you know, it's it's gone. It's done. And she's walking around the house just before I went to air. She 
she can't get this out of her head. She goes, I gave the microwave the evil eye. <laughs> I hexed the microwave. It's either an incredible coincidence or uh, is this is this maybe what they mean by the power of intention? I, I don't know, but it's um, it's a remarkable, a remarkable coincidence. If if that's the case, I'm not sure what happens to to old appliances. Where do they go after they give up the ghost? Uh, anyway, maybe there's a microwave uh, heaven, but there's there's no question that the the most profound question and mystery that has dogged mankind since well forever is what happens after we die it's really the only important question the most important question right what happens after we die what happens in the moments after we breathe our last what happens to consciousness Uh, does the near-death experience perhaps after a glimpse of an afterlife is it a mere trick of an oxygen-deprived brain Well, we're going to discuss that over the next hour. Dr. Bruce Grayson is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He served on the medicine or the medical school faculty at the universities of Michigan, Connecticut and Virginia. He was co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He's received national awards for his medical research, and his latest book is called After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. Dr. Bruce Grayson, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? I'm great, Richard. Thank you for having me on the show tonight. My pleasure. So talk to me a little bit about... uh, you know, as a man of science and, and growing up, your father was a chemist, another man of science. Did the, the, the question of what happens after we die ever pop up in the Grayson household and how was it handled? Actually, it never did, Richard. Uh, we grew up in a family that believed in the physical world and we never talked about anything else. We weren't opposed to it. We just just never occurred to us that there was anything else. So we thought that what you see is what you get. And when you die, that's the end of it. And that was fine with us. Uh, it never occurred to us to think about something else. So would it um, would it be fair to call you then a hardened skeptic and a and a, uh, a materialist through and through? I was certainly a materialist. Yes, uh, I was also a skeptic, uh, but we had no nothing to to compare what we thought was was the truth. Um, I certainly was open to considering other ideas, but I didn't have any. I just assumed that the material world was all there was. And I went through medical school, college and medical school with that mindset. And then 50 years ago, approximately, that all changed. And you begin the story with a wonderful story about a, uh, a spaghetti stain on your tie. Uh, you're, in, you're, in, you're enjoying a spaghetti dinner. The phone rings. You're, I guess you're kind of startled. You spill a little spaghetti on your on your tie, and that really changes the, the, the whole trajectory of your life. Tell me about that. Well, it did. This is uh, just a month or so into my internship. I was a brand-new doctor, kind of terrified and trying to look more professional than I felt. And I was actually eating dinner in the hospital cafeteria, and a pager went off on my belt, and it startled me. I wasn't prepared for it. 
So I kind of dropped my fork and the spaghetti sauce spilled on my tie. So I, I quickly tried to wipe it off and ended up smeared a little bigger. Uh, answered the page and it was a patient in the emergency room that had been admitted with a uh, an overdose. And it was my job as the psychiatrist on call to go down and evaluate her. So I was I didn't want to take the time to try to find a new tie, so I just put on my white lab coat and buttoned it up to cover the, t the, the tie so no one would see that there was a stain on it. I then went down to the, op to the uh, emergency room. Uh, I saw the patient and she was um, pretty unconscious. I called her name, I, I tried to shake her and she was totally unresponsive. So I heard that her roommate had brought her in and was waiting for me down the hall about 50 yards away uh, to talk with me. So I went down to talk to the roommate. I got from the inf information from the roommate about what was going on in the patient's life, what stressors she had, what she might have taken for an overdose. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, I thanked her and sent her home and went back to talk to the patient, and she was still out cold. So she was going to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight, and I arranged to see her in the morning after she woke up. Well, when I went there the next morning, she was awake, but she was just barely awake, very drowsy. So I walked into the room and uh, knocked on the door, uh, touched her lightly on the arm and, and said, you know, Holly, I'm, I'm Dr. Grayson. And she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of shocked me because I, I couldn't imagine how that could be. So I said to her, oh, I'm surprised. I thought you were uh, out cold when I talked to you last night. And she said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Mm. Well, that that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. Uh, so I, I, I tried to, to guess what I said to her. You mean the nurses told you I talked to your roommate? And she opened her eyes then and looked at me dead in the face and said, no, I saw you. Uh, I was just stunned. I couldn't imagine how that could possibly be. And she saw my confusion and then went on to tell me that she saw me and she told me where her roommate and I were sitting in the room, uh, what we were saying, and the fact that I had, it was a hot room, it was the middle of the summer, and I unbuttoned my coat so I wouldn't sweat so much, and she saw the stain, and she told me about the stain on my tie. Uh, that just, I couldn't understand that. The only way that could happen is if she had left her body and come down with me to the other room, and that made no sense to me. As far as I could tell, I was my body. So I, I just couldn't imagine how this could be. But I wasn't, there. I wasn't there to, to deal with my confusion. I had to deal with hers. Right, so right. So I, I kind of helped her talk about her suicidal thoughts and what was going on in her life. And then I uh, tried to put it out of my mind. And as the days went on and I got some distance from it, I just couldn't believe it. I, I said, there must be a trick somehow. Um, I don't know how it happened, but this, this can't be real. And that's the way it was for a few years in my mind. Uh, I just couldn't face that this has really happened. Did that did that uh, incident did that just stay with you? Like, did you think about it, dwell on it, like day after day? Uh, for a while, and then I just uh, pushed it to the back of my mind as one of those weird things that you just can't explain. Right. But then, then a few years later, in 1975, um, Dr. Raymond Moody came to join me at the University of Virginia, and he had just written a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what these experiences were like. And in reading his book and talking to Raymond, I realized this wasn't just one event that one psychiatric patient had told me. This is part of a larger syndrome that millions of people all over the world had. Uh, I still couldn't understand it, but 
being a scientist, I thought, I've got to look at this. I've got to figure out what's going on here. Right. And here I am 50 years later still trying to figure it out. There was another suicide, attempted suicide, a gentleman by the name of Henry. Yes. Uh, who tried to, it's graphic, he tried to kill himself by shooting himself in the head. It survived right. miraculously. Yeah, yeah. This uh, was just a few months after after I met the, the first patient, Holly. And he had been uh, depressed because his parents had both died. Um, and he didn't want to live without them anymore. So he started drinking. And when he got good and drunk, he decided to kill himself. So he went to the cemetery where they were buried with his hunting rifle. And after a long time lying down on their grave... He pointed the gun at his chin and pulled the trigger and blew the right half of his face off, somehow miraculously missing his brain. Uh, as he described it to me, uh, as soon as he shot the gun, he left the cemetery and found himself in a different realm, a beautiful realm, and he saw his parents walking towards him. And he was overjoyed to see them, and they seemed happy to see Tim, too. His mother said to his father, look, here comes Henry. But as they got closer to him, his mother looked at him and said, oh, Henry, now look what you've done. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he woke up back in the cemetery in a pool of blood under his head, uh, thought he'd better get some help, so he started crawling back to his car. Someone saw him there and, and put him in a truck and drove him to the hospital right away where he was admitted. He was given some plastic surgery to replace that part of his face. And then a few years later, I'm sorry, a few days later, he was transferred to the psychiatric unit where I was his doctor. I expected to see this sad, depressed, suicidal man, but instead he was rather cheerful and glad to be alive. And I just couldn't make sense of this. So I asked him, you know, why, what's changed in your life? And he said, well, now that I know where my parents are, I feel okay about them. And I can see how important it is for me to keep going. And he was so pleased with uh, his life now that he started telling the other patients how wonderful life was. Uh, well, that, again, was surprising to me. But I could dismiss this as just a psychiatric patient's hallucinations. Maybe it was part of his grief. He was drinking. Maybe he was hallucinating. Um, but I didn't give as much credence to that. Right. Um, you mentioned uh, the previous suicide attempt with Holly, I believe her name was. Was she also transformed by her uh, her near-death experience or her out-of-body experience? Well, unfortunately, I didn't follow up with her. Um, at the time, that was years before I knew anything about near-death experiences. And the, the experience with her was so unnerving to me, I just wanted to put it out of my mind. So after she was... Um, admitted to the hospital, I didn't see her again, and she was soon lost to follow-up. So I don't know what happened to her. But so, so then you started sort of traveling from hospital to hospital, university to university, state to state, looking for answers. Um, and what sort of commonalities did you start to record and, and, and recognize? What was happening to these people time and time again? Well, as unnerving as these experiences were, I realized that there was something serious going on here, and I had to uh, try to understand it. So I tried to collect as many experiences as I could, and I did that partly by um, 
writing articles about it, and people would contact me to share their stories. But I realized I was getting a biased sample doing that because those are people who chose to contact me. And it might not be the same as people who choose not to tell me about it. So I also studied patients in the hospitals where I was working. Of all patients who were admitted with a cardiac arrest or a suicide attempt or some other close brush with death. And I asked all of them about what had happened to them while they were unconscious or while they were pronounced dead. And I soon collected a, a large number, hundreds of these near-death experiences. And I found some similarities. They almost all described a sense of leaving their physical bodies, sometimes watching their bodies down below, um, entering some other realm that didn't seem like did the physical world to them, that where they were overwhelmed by a sense of peace and well-being. They often describe seeing a loving being of light that was not like a lamp or a bulb or, a, or the sun, but a, a really living being. Some interpreted that as a deity. Some did not. They just called it a, a being of light. Some saw deceased loved ones. They often went through a life review, and at some point, they came to a decision to return back to life or were told to come back to life against their will. And for me as a psychiatrist, the most profound aspect of this was that it changed them afterwards, their attitudes, their values, their beliefs, their behaviors. And I soon learned after studying these people for years that these after effects did not go away. Did it change their physical appearance in any way? I can't say it changed their physical appearance, but it certainly changed their behavior. Had they related to other people, what they thought was important to do with their lives. And as you say, this was this was a, a permanent or appeared to be a permanent change in behavior, attitude. Uh, it wasn't just something that, you know, that transformed them maybe for a period of months and then they reverted back to their old mindset. This this permanently changed their the trajectory of their lives. Right. I, I talked to people who were in their 90s who had the experience when they were teenagers, and they say it was like it was yesterday. I've never gone back to the way I was before. Now, you know, being brought up as a skeptic, I had some doubts in my mind about whether they were telling the truth or not, or they were just fooling themselves. So recently, I decided to go back and contact people I had interviewed in the 1980s and interview them again and see if they had the same types of after effects. And in fact, what I found was that they were identical. There was no difference in the after effects that they told me about 1980 and what they told me now in the, in the 21st century. The after effects had, had continued with the same strength as they were originally. We're coming up on a break uh, in a few minutes. So I'll ask you the question now. We'll start to discuss it and then we'll break and we'll continue after. But let me ask you about, is there a difference when someone... Uh, dies or has a near-death experience following a sudden, let's say, a car crash or some sort of an accident versus someone, let's say they're, they're languishing with uh, some, some disease or, you know, they have heart problems. Is there a difference there? Uh, there actually is, Richard. Um, a part of, of many people's near-death experience is a sense of time slowing down and your thoughts speeding up. And another part is this life review. And people whose uh, near-death experience is very unexpected and sudden have those elements very strong in them, whereas people who are preparing for death, who either know they have a terminal illness or are attempting suicide, 
don't often have that sense of time slowing down and thoughts speeding up. And they also don't have the life review, partly because they've already done that before the, the close brush with death. They've gone through reviewing their lives in the days or weeks or months before this. Interesting. Interesting. So the, the this idea of time, um, this time dilation or whatever you want to yes. call it, time speeding up and yet they re, there is this clarity of mind. Right. But the other thing that we hear about often is during, let's say, um, a, a car crash, time seems to slow down. It's almost as if the car crash is happening in slow motion. So how do you account for the the, the seeming disparity there? Uh, I'm not sure I can account for it, but I've found that it does it does hold true across uh, near-death experiences, across cultures and across the decades, across the centuries. Uh, we have accounts of near-death experiences going back to ancient Greece and Rome that sound like the ones we hear today. And in, in many experiences where there is a sudden accident, people describe time slowing down, but so they have time to figure out how to survive this crash. Um, there was a graphic uh, illustration of this. A uh, Swiss um, geology professor at the Zurich Polytechnic Institute back in the 1800s had fallen as he was climbing the Alps and described falling down 60 feet, repeatedly crashing into the rocks. And he reported that he had previously watched people fall and it was terrifying to him to watch people fall. But when he was falling, it was totally blissful. He was detached from his body. He watched his body crash, and time seemed to slow down for him, get slower and slower the faster he fell, so he could figure out how to twist around in midair so he would land in a snowdrift rather than on the rocks. And he had time to think about whether he should take his glasses off so he wouldn't break them. He thought about the loved ones he was leaving behind. And all this happened in a matter of a few seconds while he was falling. Dr. Grayson, I'm going to jump in here. Uh, we're going to take a time out when we come back. I think people will be fascinated to know how that experience uh, affected one of the greatest minds of all time, Albert Einstein. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Bruce Grayson as we discuss near-death experiences right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Bruce Grayson is with us. His new book, After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal about Life and Beyond. Before the break, we were talking about Albert Heim, I believe, who yes. had a fall in Switzerland, describing this strange effect with time, how time seemed to slow down, and yet the clarity uh, of his mind and his ability to think uh, seemed to speed up. And this was back in the, the late 19th century, uh, and this account apparently uh, influenced Albert Einstein. Tell me about that. Right, well, uh, as you said, um, Albert Heim had this experience where as he fell faster and faster, his time seemed to dilate and get slower and slower. And he was so impressed with this experience that he started telling all of his students at the Zurich Polytechnic Institute where he taught geology about this. And this happened in the 1890s. And about 10 years later, 
he has one of the students, the teenage Albert Einstein, and he told that class, as he did all his classes, about his experience. And then about 15 years later, Einstein wrote his theory of relativity in which he postulated that as we go faster and faster approaching the speed of light, time gets slower and slower and dilates, just as it did for Albert Heim in his experience. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I want you, you mentioned the life review a little earlier. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, I have talked before and I've told you one of my favorite movies is Albert Brooks. Yes. Um, Mo- yes. the, uh, the, the movie where he he dies and has it's called defending your life yes and so he goes to after death he had he has to face this life review and he's appointed uh, it's almost like a trial and uh i think the prosecuting attorney is played by uh is it lee grant and he's defended by uh rip torn fantastic yes. actor yes. And uh, it's an awkward situation. He he sits there in front of this movie screen and every major incident uh, is projected on that screen. And he sees how he interacted with his fellow human beings and some of it's awkward and some of it's embarrassing and even painful. What did people tell you about that life review? Well, they often say uh, things that are consistent with that, that they review their entire life in exquisite detail they talk about, talk about seeing details they didn't realize at the time they were going through the actual events uh, earlier in their lives. Um, and they, they start judging what they did in their lives and seeing what's important and what's not, what was good and what was a mistake. They don't often report being judged by some other person, uh, by a deity or by something else. They report judging themselves. And the surprising thing about some near-death experiences is that they're also experienced through the eyes of someone else as well. Let me give you an example of this. A fellow named Tom Sawyer, which was his real name, uh, had a near-death experience in his 30s when a truck he was working under fell and crushed his chest. And he remembered in his life review he had at that time uh, being a teenager, a hot-headed hot rodder, and he was driving his truck down the street and a drunk man happened to run in front of his truck and he almost hit the man. Well, he was furious, so he stopped the truck rolled down his window and started swearing at the man. And the man, unfortunately being drunk, reached his hand in the truck window and slapped Tom across the face. And that was too much for this teenager. So he opened the truck door, got out, and started punching the man until he left him a bloody heap in the median strip, and then got back in his truck and drove off. Well, when Tom then reviewed reviewed this in his life review, he saw the event not only through his own eyes, but through the eyes of the drunk man as well. And he saw his own face, Tom's face, getting redder and redder, and then felt each one of Tom's 32 blows on the man's face. And he felt his nose getting bloodier and his teeth going through his lower lip. And he felt the embarrassment and the humiliation. And Tom, now in his life review, is feeling this from his own perspective and from the man's. And he realizes from this that we are all part of the same thing. It's like looking at your hand, and you look at the, the five fingers, it looks like they're different things. But when you look at the whole hand, you see they're actually attached at the palm. And he comes away from this experience thinking that we are all part of the same things, part of something greater than ourselves, and that what you do to somebody else, you do to yourself as well. And this leads most near-death experiences to come back with a sense of the golden rule being what goes on in the world. It's not any more just a goal we should we should strive for to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
but it's a, a, a law of nature, like the law of gravity. This is the way the universe works. So, so it is it the life review then that seems to be responsible for this transformative um, change in people, rather than just simply the the near death experience or the out of body experience or you know being in the tunnel. It is it the in your estimation then. Is it the life review that causes the change? Well, that's what I thought when I heard people talking about the life review. And from a, the perspective of a psychiatrist, I thought, well, of course, you're reviewing your life, you're coming to terms with it, and you learn from that. <clears throat> but being a scientist, I actually did some studies of this. I looked at correlating the different parts of the near-death experience with the degree of the after effects. And I found that the life review was not, in fact, the most important part of it. Uh, what seemed to be most highly associated with the profound after effects was just the sense of feeling loved and protected by this being of light and a sense of being part of a universe that's really benign and a friendly place to be. And the fact that when we die, what follows is not something to be feared. And this gives people a totally different sense of what they're all about, what it means to be human, and what life and death are all about. And that's the most important part in changing their lives, making these huge transformations. Did, what do people tell you about the moment of death, whether it's a violent death or a, a drowning or something that one would expect to be perhaps uh, painful or even... Uh, inc you know, incredibly traumatic. People often just die from the trauma of an accident or, um, you know, a violent death. Uh, but what do people remember about that moment when, let's say, the last breath leaves their body? Are they in pain? What do they feel? Well, it, it's true that, that many deaths are uh, associated with pain and or fear. Um, but people report that at the moment of death, you lose those feelings and you suddenly become overwhelmed by this feeling of peace and well-being and you have a sense of dissociating from your physical body so the physical body may be in this painful state but you are not anymore and they report that they tend to look at the body in a dispassionate way as if it's not them but something they were uh, in they were associated with for a while like taking off a coat and in this new state they are without the body, they feel warmth and loved and protected. And it's a totally different feeling from what they were doing, going through just before they died. Do, do all or most of people who experience a near-death um, or encounter a near-death experience, do they all, is it also accompanied by an out-of-body experience? Uh, almost half of them have an out-of-body experience. Um, Many just don't describe that sort of thing. They just describe um, having this moment of death and then finding themselves immediately in some other realm. But almost half describe leaving their bodies and hanging around in the physical world for a while, trying to figure out what's going on, and then at some point get drawn into this other realm. Are they, are they floating above their body? Are they able to walk through walls? What do they tell you? Often they are. They often are moving around. Um, and they often will look down at this body and at first not recognize it as their own. Uh, they are surprised when they realize that is their body and they're no longer in it. Um, they 
if they do try to walk through walls, they often found that they can. Um, they can sometimes communicate with people who are still alive, but often they can't. They will try and not make any impact on the people around them. Um, Have there been um, detailed studies regarding uh, you know, this out-of-body experience? So, for example... I mean, we hear a lot of anecdotal stories. Oh, I uh, I overheard the surgeons talking about, you know, their vacation in Ohio right. or when I was, you know, when they I was told that my heart had stopped or that there was no brain activity. We hear anecdotal. But what about actual data? What do we have? Well, that's a great question, Richard, because as you said, a lot of these stories are not corroborated. We just hear someone say, I left my body and I heard the surgeon saying this and that. Um and you can say, okay, maybe you did, maybe not, maybe it was a fantasy. But in some cases, in fact, a great number of cases now, people describe seeing things that were totally unexpected, that they couldn't have guessed, that we sometimes later find out from the, the surgeons or other people involved was completely accurate. And let me give you an example of this. One fellow I knew who was a 55-year-old truck driver had emergency cardiac bypass surgery. He had quadruple bypass surgery. And in the op during the operation, he says that he left his body, hovered above it, and saw his surgeon flapping his elbows as if he was trying to fly. And when he told me this, I thought, this is absurd. I've been a doctor for 30 years at this point, and I'd never heard or seen of anything like this. So I assumed he was hallucinating because of the anesthesia he was given. But he insisted it was true. So later on, with his permission, I talked to his surgeon. And I asked him about this, this thing that the, the, the patient claimed he saw. And the surgeon rather sheepishly said, yes, that's, that's true. I developed this strange habit that I've never seen anybody else use, but I let my assistant start the procedure while I get down my gowns and gloves and get everything sterile. And then I walk into the operating room and to, to make sure I don't touch anything that's not in the sterile field, I put my hands flat against my chest where I know they won't touch anything. And I point things out to my assistants with my elbows so I don't touch anything with my fingers. And he demonstrated for me, and it's just like the patient said. He was flapping his arms around as he was trying to fly. And there's no way the patient could have seen that. His eyes were taped shut for the operation, and he was unconscious. He was totally anesthetized, and yet he described this accurately. We have many, many examples like this of people who describe accurately things they saw and heard while they were ostensibly unconscious. Now you asked about experiments, and in fact, we have tried some experiments. There have been, I believe, six experiments now done in, in different hospitals where researchers have planted visual targets above eye level pointing up so they can only be seen by looking down from the ceiling. And they do this in rooms where people are likely to have near-death experiences such as um, intensive care units or cardiac care units. Dr. Grayson, I'll just interrupt uh, here as pardon the interruption. I'll just uh, interject and we'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll talk about the results sure. of those experiments. Can't wait to hear this. Dr. Bruce Grayson, after a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond right here on The Conspiracy Show. If you're in the live chat on YouTube, love your questions. We'll get uh, Ryan to uh, read those when we come back. Stay tuned.
PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, Dr. Grayson, you were telling us before the break these experiments where um, to test the, I guess, the veracity of these accounts of -of out-of-body experiences, they would place a target above eye level, let's say on some sort of a piece of medical equipment uh, in an an operating theater. Uh, So it would only be visible if you were looking down from above. What What were the results of these experiments? Well, there, as I said, there have been some six experiments like this. The largest was done by Dr. Sam Parnia at New York University. And unfortunately, we were hoping that there would be um, great results from this, and we didn't find anything really. Uh, in about 2,000 patients that have been studied so far, there were a few who described something like a near-death experience. None described being able to see the target. Now, if they had claimed to see the target and described it inaccurately, we would take that as evidence that they don't really see when they're outside of their bodies. But they didn't, in fact, see the target, so we would basically have no evidence for whether they can or cannot. So the, the experiments did not show anything. Now, when I describe this experiment to near-death researchers, they're astounded at our naivete. They say, if you were out of your body for the first time in your life, with your body being down, being operated on, why would you look around the room for some irrelevant target that you didn't even know was there? So they think it's kind of, kind of ridiculous. And what do you think of that? Does that sound reasonable to you? It does. It does. Uh, I think it was a, a great idea, but it didn't pan out. Um, so how would you like to see maybe the next experiment conducted with, re- with regards to these OBEs? Well, you need to somehow motivate the patients to be looking for the target. And one way to do that is to tell them there there will be a target somewhere in the room and they want them to identify it. And, of course, you can't do that with people who have unexpected near-death events. Right. It seems to me there was a very famous anecdotal um, case where a woman in an operating theater died on the table. And then later she she traveled during her out-of-body experience, near-death experience, she traveled through the hospital up several floors and looked out a window and saw a shoe on a windowsill several floors above. There's no way that would have been visible um, under any normal circumstances. Do you remember that case? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, Kimberly Clark, who was a uh, social worker at the Harborview Hospital in Seattle, reported this. The patient was brought in in cardiac arrest, uh, totally unconscious, Um, resuscitated and admitted to the hospital. And she described having a near-death experience uh, in which she left her body and, as you said, traveled around outside and saw a red tennis shoe on the other side of the hospital on a window ledge. And we have no idea how that could have gotten there. But uh, Kim Clark, who was her social worker, decided to look for it. And she, in fact, went around from room to room, pressing her face against the windows before she finally found it. And it was exactly as the patient described. Uh, you mentioned anesthesia. Yes. And I'm wondering how anesthesia has impacted reports of NDEs and OBEs, because one of the things that anesthesia can cause is, um, is you know, memory uh, lapses. Right. So, in other words, since the 
I don't know if there's any way to track this, but since the advent of anesthesia, anesthesiology, is there been a decline in the report of NDEs? Uh, actually, we don't know because before the 1980s or 1990s, nobody was talking about these phenomena. If you look back in the medical literature, maybe once every two or three decades, there'd be a report of what we now call a near-death experience. But people just didn't talk about them back in those days. Uh, so we don't know what, was, what it was like before there was widespread anesthesia. What do you think the effect might be, though? Well, as you mentioned, anesthesia can often interfere with memory, as can many other things that are associated with near-death experiences. For example, there are traumatic experiences. We know that traumatic events are harder to remember uh, accurately later on. They tend to get distorted. They're intensely emotional experiences, and we know that emotion tends to distort experiences over time. So we would expect these near-death experience memories to change over the decades. And we actually did some research on that as well. And again, I mentioned that I, I had interviewed people in the 1980s and then again in the 21st century to see whether their accounts had changed at all. And we found that the memories of their NDEs were the same now as what they told me 30, 40 years ago. So the memories do not change at all over the years. Fascinating. All right. We, uh, this is a short segment, but we will come back and uh, we're going to get to some questions in our YouTube live chat. I'll get uh, Ryan White, my live stream producer, to weigh in with those. Dr. Bruce Grayson stays with us for a few moments yet. And again, the author of After, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Just a reminder, coming up at the top of the hour, documentary filmmaker Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions will be here and we'll talk about the biblical ages. There are seven, actually, in the Bible and obviously culminating uh, with the, um, the end of days, followed by the millennial kingdom or the uh, the um, messianic kingdom and we'll talk to uh, Ali about uh, that what do the end of, end of days or the end times really mean right now dr bruce grayson stays with us i'm going to throw it over to my live stream producer ryan white ryan we've got some interesting questions in the in the youtube live chat we sure do uh, quantum reality our viewer wants to know how many of these near-death experiences or coincidences will it take before they're recognized by fact as fact by science? Interesting. So anecdotal evidence, how important is that? I think it's critically important. You know, sometimes people uh, diminish the, the importance of, of anecdotes, but in fact, all science starts with anecdotes, which are basically observations of what's going on. Uh, without anecdotes, we have no, no science. Um, we start with anecdotes, and by collecting a large number of them, we find patterns and then develop hypotheses from the patterns to test. Um, but without the anecdotes, we have no no enough to study. So I think the anecdotes are critically, critically important. They don't by themselves prove anything, but they're the starting point for collecting more and more information about them. And and there are there has been so many documented cases now. Uh, is that is that causing your your uh, skeptical colleagues to finally stand up and take notice or do they remain do they remain skeptical well for the most part they, that doesn't by itself does not uh, impress 
some uh, some uh, skeptics. Uh, we have now many, many thousands of near-death experiences that are consistent, and the consistency is certainly important. But we need to start ruling out the hypo other hypotheses that have been proposed to explain near-death experiences. And we've been doing that by testing them one by one, one by one. The various hypotheses about lack of oxygen to the brain, drugs given to patients, uh, electrical activity in the brain. We've slowly been collecting data to test all those hypotheses and ruling them out. All right, Ryan, you have another question from the YouTube live chat. Yeah, this is an interesting one from GBGN1, and he wants to know if children have different near-death experiences than adults. Good question. It is a good question. Um, certainly near-death experiences occur to children as well as to adults, and they tend to be very similar to those of adults, with a few exceptions. And one is that many adults will see deceased loved ones in the NDE, and children don't have that much exposure to people in their families dying. So they tend not to report as many of these encounters with deceased loved ones. However, children will often report seeing figures that they describe to their parents that are unidentified to the children. And the parents can recognize them as the child's grandparents who had died before the child was born and so forth. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Dr. Wilder Penfield, a great Canadian um, neuroscientist, was able to, and I believe there have been other studies, it seemed to me I recall one in Switzerland, where they were able to reproduce um, an, an out-of-body experience by stimulating certain cortexes within the brain. Talk to me about that. Does that diminish if they can if they can produce an OBE through electrical stimulation, does that prove somehow perhaps that that OBEs aren't real? Well, let me say separate that into two parts. One is can they do that? And I think the answer is no. Uh, Dr. Penfield did some great work with stimulating parts of the brain and seeing what happened, and it's been reported that he produces near-death uh, out-of-body experiences when he stimulated the right temporal lobe. And in fact, he did not do that. He simulated the temporal lobes of more than 2,000 patients, and two of them described something that was at least vaguely like an out-of-body experience. One said, I feel as if I'm half in and half out, and the other one said, I feel almost as if I was leaving my body, which is not the same as a sense of being out of the body and being able to watch your body from above. Now, since then, more recently, uh, Olaf Blanke in Switzerland has claimed to be able to produce near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences by stimulating the temporal lobe. But if you actually read his accounts, he describes patients having um, a sense that their legs are getting shorter or longer or that they're falling off the table. And these are, these are certainly illusions of the body, but they're not near-death experiences. But having said all that, even if we did show that stimulation of the temporal lobe was associated with, with out-of-body experiences, that would not establish that they cause the out-of-body experience. Everything that we experience is mediated by the brain. That doesn't mean the brain causes it. When you hear an orchestra playing, you hear that with the, with the help of the brain. That doesn't mean the brain is causing the music. It's just translating it for you. Right, right. And, and just because you can uh, produce an effect a phenomenon through electrical stimulation doesn't necessarily discount that that it's not real. It's, yes, it's similar to when people take psychedelic drugs and have mystical experiences. 
One explanation is that the drugs cause the experience. Another is that the drugs permit you to free yourself from the brain and have the experience. That's interesting. Uh, it reminds me of uh, you know why ayahuasca and, and things yeah. like that. And 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 I, I'm told that one of the uh, I guess DMT. I, I I presume that's an endorphin, and that the brain does release DMT at the time of death. So how do you respond to critics who would suggest that that's what's happening, that the brain is releasing DMT or that combined with perhaps uh, a lack of oxygen? Yeah. Uh, actually, DMT is not an endorphin. It's a psychotropic um, drug ah, that okay. produces hallucinations. Um, and there are speculations that the brain produces DMT um, at the time of death. There's really no way to test that because it's produced, if it is, in very small amounts in a part of the brain that we don't, we don't know where. So trying to look at some unknown part of the brain for a, a small group of pieces of chemical dirt while someone's in a near-death crisis is virtually impossible to do. However, again, you have the question of whether if this chemical is associated with the event, is it causing it or just permitting it to happen? Right, right. So as a man of science, where are you at now in terms of your understanding of what the mind is, what 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 is consciousness what happens to consciousness after death well i've only been doing it for 50 years so i can't say i understand <laughs> is that <much>. all <laughs> uh, well i can tell you this i started out with a model that the mind is what the brain does that all our thoughts and feelings and perceptions are created by the brain and i can no longer believe that because of all the data that contradicts that and not only from near-death experience there are other experiences we have as well that could not happen if the brain was causing the mind. So I don't know what the mind is, but it seems like it can, under certain circumstances, separate itself from the brain and function independently. Um, I have no idea how, and that's a real problem with, with this idea. But we also have a problem with the idea that the brain creates the mind. We have no idea how an electrical or chemical process in the brain can create a thought. No one has ever come up with a hypothesis for that. So are you inclined to believe at this point that consciousness exi exists outside of, the, out of, outside of the body? I can't say that I'm convinced, but the data certainly points strongly in that direction. So if I were a betting man, I would say, yes, consciousness probably can exist independent of the brain. I mean, that, that changes everything, obviously, <laughs> I mean, to say the least. But, yes. How has that how has that changed you personally? Are you are you more spiritual now? Uh, well, I'm not sure what spiritual means, but I certainly tend to believe that there is a part of us that's not physical, and that is probably the more important part of us, uh, a part that may in fact survive after the body dies. If it can function without the brain while we're alive, perhaps it can after we die as well. Uh, so I can't, I can't say that I am a firm believer in that, but I certainly take it very seriously. What this research has done to me is made me very comfortable with not knowing the answers and with the unknown. So uh, let me put it another way. Are you less of a materialist than you were 50 years ago? Definitely. I think the strict materialist interpretation of life is totally inconsistent with the facts. How does that sit with your colleagues uh, when you gather around the Keurig coffee machine at work? Mm -hmm. uh, do they, I mean, how do they, how do they treat you? 
It's interesting that doctors are just like everybody else. Some think this is the most fascinating research in the world, and some are embarrassed by it and wish I would go away. But actually, some studies done in Scotland, in Belgium, and in uh, Brazil, as well as in the United States in recent years, have shown that 50% of scientists now believe that the mind and the brain are separate things. 50%. Wow. And to think it all started with a spaghetti stain. <laughs> For me, it did, yes. How do we get a copy of your new book after? Uh, it's available on uh, Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. You can find out more about it in my website, www.brucegrayson.com, where I have links to, to order the books. Uh, but it's available wherever books are sold. And we should point out Grayson is spelled G-R-E-Y-S-O-N, Dr. Bruce Grayson. Dot com. What a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. All right. When we come back, the end times, the end of days. What does it all mean? Ali Siadatan, documentary filmmaker from Think Again Productions, will reveal all. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and ah, your cabin in the woods. Ali Siadatan is here to explain what the end of days or the end times really means. The, uh, the Bible speaks of seven distinct ages. All that is written from Genesis to Revelation relates to one or more of these ages. Everything God has done is doing and will do must be understood in the context of the ages. So we're going to touch on some of these ages and then get into the end of days. What does that mean? What will happen during the end of days? What comes afterwards? Ali Siadatan is the founder of Think Again Productions in Canada, a multimedia teaching ministry shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge, which is making the Bible more real than ever. Ali has found evidence, keeps agreeing with the Bible's tale from biblical cities peering through the sand to alien abductions and prophetic events in 2006. Think Again Productions released the groundbreaking documentary UFOs, Angels, and Gods on Google Video, and it received over a quarter million views in just nine months. Again, the documentary UFOs, Angels, and Gods, and his other documentary, Goliath Rising, Hybrids, Nephilim, and Titans, uh, can be uh, viewed for free at thinkagainproductions.com. Ali, always great to have you here. How are you, my friend? Richard, um, very good to be here. Very excited to uh, share this knowledge with your and your audience tonight. Okay, so before we get to the end of days, when we talk about biblical ages, what does yes. that mean? What is a biblical age? Um, well, um, the Bible divides uh, the administration of God's plans for the human world. Uh, into uh, periods of time, through ages of history. Um, other, other cultures have this notion as well. We saw it with the Mayan calendar, you know, that, you know, there was 
we're about to enter a new age. Um, uh, the whole, the, the dates like tw- 2012, 2020, I mean, these are all with dates that people threw around. The age of Aquarius, you know, we, we hear things like that. Well, the Bible also divides history in ages. It goes back to the very first chapter of the very first book. It says that in the fourth phase, the fourth day of the creation uh, story, um, God ignites the biological clock that underlies all life processes. As the Earth enters into its orbit, um, it says that uh, suddenly we have this idea of of, of seasons and of years. And so everybody knows what a year is. And a season, the word that's there translated as season, is moedim, which means appointed times. So we are told that in the fourth phase of the creation story, uh, God um, uh, creates this uh, orbit, you know, the planet turning around itself around the sun, and now we have the possibility of having a calendar. That is the first time where this idea of the measurement of time and seasons of time and appointed times, it's mentioned in the very first page of the Bible, in the very first chapter, this is uh, when the whole thing begins, which essentially signals that even when the earth itself was conceived, before any animals or humans walked on it, God, in his foreknowledge, had already seen all the ages of human history. And so he's pointing to the fact that there will be such things. There will be times, there will be times that are important to me, there will be different ages of history. And then as the book begins to unfold, God begins to unveil uh, what these ages are and even tells them to us before they occur so we are prepared and we have a sense of destiny and a sense of destination. So I mentioned, I believe there are seven uh, distinct ages in the Bible, correct? Well, you know what, the truth is there there are many ways you can kind of cut and slice them depending on what you say is the beginning of one age and what is the end of another one. For me, there are three that stand out as very macro time frames. One is goes from the time of Adam all the way to the time of Abraham. That is one, the first age of, of uh, uh, biblical history, and it's kind of a chaotic age. Uh, things fall apart. Um, uh, we have the three pillars of the fallen world that are introduced to us. So one is what happens in the Garden of Eden, and, and man begins a, a great exile from the presence of God. Two, we see this plan that talks about uh, the fallen angels coming and, re- and you know entering into relations with the daughters of Adam, having children with them, passing kind of corrupt knowledge down to them, and creating uh, a kingdom. And this is going to be kind of a heartbeat throughout history. And the third thing is after the flood, when the nations are gathered together to to build this a tower that reaches all the way to heaven, the Tower of Babel, whatever it may be. It might have been even some sort of a technology that can leave the earth and go to heaven, because Babel means the gate of the gods, Babyloni, the, the, the city of Babylon. Its name, Bab, means gate. Iloni means gods. It means the gateway to the gods. Perhaps it was a gate of some kind that led to the heavens. Anyhow, so in that time, God... Um, it 
confuses the human languages and, you know, casts the nations out of his presence because they were all one family and they knew him at that time. But then he creates a certain sense of confusion and national identities emerge as the family divides into 70 nations. So these are kind of the three pillars of the fallen world. These are the three problems that God will have to fix in the rest of history to heal the human race and to reestablish it. The events of the Garden of Eden, the corruption introduced into DNA by the fallen angels, the corruption introduced into human DNA by the fallen angels, you know, will require a new body. Humanity will eventually have to be given a new body, and that's what I think the resurrected body of Christ is about. And the casting out of the nations, as the nations kind of leave the presence of God and they get confused, at some point they must come to know God again. You know, and somehow there's going to be a hero in our story in the future that's going to perhaps make all of that possible. So that's the first age. The second age begins with Abraham. And, you know, God meets Abraham and he tells him, Right after chapter eleven, which is the which is the chapter all the families of the earth are dispersed from the presence of God, in chapter twelve, the very next chapter, we meet the character through whose life the solution to what we saw in the first age, the age of chaos, the solution of 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 uh, the whole matter is going to start now through this character. There's a reason he's introduced right after chapter 11, because that signals the age of chaos is done, and now God is going to reestablish order and light. And so God says to Abraham, you know, go away from your country and from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then God says to him, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here's the mission statement, essentially, for the second uh, age of biblical story. Right here, these, this covenant, these are the things that God sets out to do over the course of the, the centuries from the time of Abraham all the way to um, the day of, I would say, Pentecost and the destruction of the Second Temple, and, and you know, the, to the days where Jesus comes to the earth, the, the age of the Second Age takes us essentially from Abraham to Jesus. Um, and so... Now, let me ask you something, Ali. Are these biblical ages, are they... Are they clearly delineated either in the Bible or are they accompanied by signs in the skies like we hear about, you know, blood moons and comets or we hear about, uh, you know, eclipses? Uh, are they are they delineated in that fashion? Um, they, they are incredible declarations like the one I just mentioned of God coming and declaring this covenant to Abraham, after he's dispatched the families of the earth, he says, in you all the families will be blessed. Well, which families? Well, the ones that were sent packing in the previous chapter. So this is a major shift in the story, um, and declares a new rhythm, something we haven't seen so far. Everything has kind of been going downhill so far 
from the days of Adam to the days of Abraham. This is the first time where we're getting kind of a change in the narrative that points to a significant shift in the way history is going to move forward, and order will emerge. And from here we see the events of Mount Sinai and the giving of God's law and the birth of an entire nation that is chosen out of all the nations to carry God's purposes. And then in this particular age, God reveals that there will be four empires of great significance and that at the end of the final empire, he will usher in a new age. He explains that through a dream that he gives King Nebuchadnezzar. And and these four empires are the Babylonian Empire, um, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the fourth one is the Roman Empire, in which we still live. Uh, the, The eagles of Rome stand tall, from Moscow to D.C., and you can see it, you know, the the czars of Russia, well, that's the Slavic term for Caesar. You know, in German it's Kaiser. We, in English, say Caesar, which perhaps is the closest to the Latin. And um, the the eagles, uh, the symbol of Rome, and and the West continues to be the greatest power of the world. Uh, Rome has continued. It's just entered into its technological uh, you know, uh, stage. And so the Greco-Roman system of democracy, the Senate, uh, all of these things continue to be with us. Even the languages that we speak come from Latin and come from Greek. And so this, our philosophies, our worldviews, you know, we are very much still in that fourth empire that God predicts. So that's another way you know, that God sends a signal that, hey, there's going to be these empires, and then I'm going to bring in a new age. Um, so that's another signal, and there are more we can talk about. Right. Okay, so that brings us to, uh, I guess, the main focus of tonight's discussion, and that is the end of days. Uh, how is how is that described in the Bible? Are they Is it called end of days, or we, we, we tend to refer yeah. to them as the end times? Yes. Uh, what's the proper the proper um, description or or verbiage here? Um, well, since the 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 Bible uh, begins in in the Hebrew uh, language, uh, you know the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and that's kind of the foundation of of the worldview uh, that Scripture presents. Um, the first time the word is in Hebrew is acharit hayamim. Acharit means end. Hayamim means uh, days, end of days. Um, it's mentioned in the book of Genesis um, in chapter 49, you know, for well, I guess that's the first time it's mentioned. Um, it has a very important mention uh, in the scroll of the prophet Daniel uh, in the 12th chapter, uh, where this angel comes and gives him a great prophecy about something, and at the end the angel says to him, you know what, seal this prophecy because it is for the end of days. And in Hebrew it would say, acharit hayamim. So it's pointing to the fact that this particular message will have relevance in this in this age. And, you know, um, uh, the um, um, as far as... Uh, before we kind of get into the, the last age of history, because, you know, this last age of history is perhaps 
the most exciting one in some ways because there is no more ages of corrupt history predicted. After this final age, what comes is an age of peace, an age that God himself establishes on the earth and rules out of, and we're going to our story is going to lead us there. So, so this is the end of days. is a very exciting age because it is the final of all the ages. But what happens in the previous age, the one just before it? There's a few key events that occur in this in the age of Abraham to Jesus that are very important. Um, God declares, um, you know, the, the nation of Israel and these four empires. Then He declares what is called a Davidic covenant. He says that he's, uh, he takes a, a human household, the, the line of King David, and he declares that somehow one of David's sons will become an eternal king of an eternal kingdom, and that that is the only throne on earth that heaven considers to be legitimate. So that's an interesting thing to watch for, because Mary says to Gabriel, says to Mary, that your son is the one, you know, that God spoke of, um, and then there is this incredible prophecy given by Daniel, the prophet, about, um, you know, the, there are 77 years decreed over Israel and over Jerusalem, um, and, and apparently in the 69th of these seven-year periods. So imagine instead of counting a year as one, imagine you counted seven years as one week. 14 years as two weeks, 21 years as three weeks. So you, you, you kind of put seven years together to form a single week of years. So God declares that on the 69th of these weeks of years, the Messiah will be killed, not for himself. And then the temple and the city will be destroyed. And he tells this to Daniel at a time where the first temple has not been rebuilt and the city is not inhabited by Jewish people. They're in exile in Babylon and in Persia. And God already tells Daniel about a time where the temple and the city will be destroyed for a second time, right after the Messiah is killed. And he even gives him the period of time in which this will occur. So, so you can see how God is dividing time and declaring the things that were going to happen in certain seasons that he has preordained for history itself. Even the is it, is it, it seems like it's a very precise timepiece, God's clock. It's like he winds it up, it's set in motion. Is there anything that can interrupt uh, the, the progression of these ages? Can no. they be delayed? Can, they be, can you hit the snooze button? You can't. Everything is, consp- is always moving towards fulfilling them. You know, God has given us free will. We are not robots, and he doesn't want us to be robots. And anyone who has kids understands free will, because your kids don't do what you ask of them to do. Uh, Not always, because free will is how God wants it to be. He he doesn't want to force us to love him. He wants to give us a choice. Um, But he has put parameters for what he's created, or everything would really go out of whack, and we wouldn't have any hope. He, He said, look, there's a plan of healing and of redemption and of restoration, and there is a forward movement. So in this second great age of history from Abraham, you know, to Jesus, these are the events that happen. A nation is born. 
four empires are, 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 are decreed. Uh, a Davidic kingdom is spoken of that will be an eternal kingdom. A Messiah is talked about who will die. And even a second temple that will be destroyed and Jerusalem, which was once destroyed by the Babylonians, will be destroyed for a second time, initiating another dispersion of the Jewish people. All of these things were spoken to occur in the great second age of history, which begins with the declarations that God makes to Abraham and continues forward, moving forward. And so now I think we can now get into the final ages, which are the more exciting ones, and especially the ones that concern us, since we live in them. And we live in a very specific time uh, that much is spoken about. Uh, we live in a very specific period of, of the final age. So it's very exciting. Well, we're just about two minutes away from our break, so let's just begin. Our di- we'll dip our toes into this and we'll continue after. When does the the end times begin? Uh, is, there, is it precise? Yes, it is. It is precise because um, it is something that they ask, uh, you know, that Peter declares it. When, when on the day of Pentecost, which is called Shavuot uh, by the Hebrews, who, um, you know, who were given this, this entire commandment, that on this particular day they are to keep an appointed day, you know, that's another thing. There are, there are all these appointed days. God says, you know, you have the Passover. When, you, when this particular day comes on the calendar, make sure you keep this appointed day. Well, Jesus is crucified on Passover. Now we realize that the appointed days of the Hebrew calendar that God had ordained on his calendar were, in fact, each one a prophetic day that God had preordained an event of incredible spiritual importance that would be of significance for the entire human race and for Israel would occur on each one of these appointed days, like seals that would be unlocked. And so this itself is, is, is kind of, you know, pointing to the importance of this idea of ages and timings. So Passover, Jesus gets crucified. He's in the tomb during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He comes out of the tomb on the Feast of First Fruits, three of the appointed days of Moses' calendar. And then 50 days later on Shavuot, which is Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is released, and that is the Feast of the Harvest, you know, when the harvest of the faithful begins. And so it is on this day that, dipped in the Holy Spirit, like uh, filled with it, Peter, who is just a fisherman, not an educated fellow uh, from, the, from the Galilee region, he gets up and he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And he's talking about those who are young in the faith and old in the faith. I've got to jump in here, Ali, because we're uh, up against a break. We'll come down, we'll come back and continue to discuss the beginning of the end, the end times. Ali Seattan, Think Again Productions. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay tuned for more. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
Welcome back. Before we get back to my conversation with Ali Siadatan regarding the biblical ages and, of course, uh, the end times or end of days, just a, a quick note. Uh, for those of you who would like to become an official uh, donor to the program or to all of my work, really, at Strange Planet Productions, this radio show, my podcast, the YouTube channel, uh, patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Uh, you may have noticed in the uh, live, uh, the YouTube live stream, uh, if we haven't done it already, we will soon. There's a, uh, a, a crawl there where we uh, we place the names of some of our, our donors. And um, if you become a donor, you can see your name uh, for as part of our appreciation for your support. It will uh, crawl during the live, uh, live stream. And uh, also, uh, you'll receive a, a, um, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone which is an, you'll receive an episode of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. That's my old podcast that I did with uh, Chris Jericho from the world or WWE. Uh, and um, the, uh, the podcast goes out once a month to uh, some of those, depending on the tier that you're in. So go to patreon.com slash strange planet. Pick the, the tier that's right for you. Any amount, of course, is greatly appreciated, and it helps us continue the work that we do here. Also, I just wanted to mention, I'm not sure if you caught it uh, last Tuesday, the debut of my new program on uh, Saga 960 AM. And uh, it's uh, weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m., news and opinion and uh, interviews again it's saga960am.ca you can stream it there or if you're in the greater toronto area you may be able to pull it in on your uh, your radio saga s a u g a as in mississauga 960am and i'll be back tuesday uh, with a brand new show 4 to 6 p.m. all right ali we were discussing uh, I guess we're kind of so after the the crucifixion. Really, we're here. We are two thousand uh, years later. Uh, you've sort of described these as the birth pangs of these uh, this end of time, uh, these end of days. Why does why such long stretches of time between ages? Why does the end of days take over two thousand years? Okay, so the last uh, age of biblical history is called the end times. So the, the answer to the question, what is the end times, is it is the last age of biblical history before God establishes his own kingdom on the earth. That's first of all what the end times is. Two, when does it begin? Well, according to Peter, it begins on the day of Pentecost. So the last day, the last age of human history in the Bible, is called the end times, Acharit Hayamim. And it began on the Feast of Shavuot, on one of the appointed, uh, you know, cyclical, day, one of the appointed days of God's cyclical yearly calendar. God had picked a day that the Jews were to perform certain rituals on and come to Jerusalem on this particular one. That's why all these Jews had come to Jerusalem from all over the Middle East. And on that day, God releases His Holy Spirit, which brings the instructions of God, the Torah of Adonai, into the hearts of people. And Peter gets up under the influence of that Spirit and declares that we have just entered into the final age of human history. 
we have just entered into the last days. So that is when it begins. Now, this was something that was on the mind of the disciples of Jesus and Jesus because we see it in the conversations leading to this. In Matthew chapter 24, it's recorded that they say to him, you know, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So, you know, um, and the and the end of the age. So uh, they're asking him, what, what will be the signs that will say that the present age has ended? Haze um, olam, uh, like which is the present age, and we're talking. So they're they're asking him, what, what are the signs that the present age has ended? And what they're really saying to him is that the age of empires is going to end. That that the Roman Empire will fall and and their pagan ways will collapse. And your kingdom will rise, and you will be the king of Israel, and your instructions will go out into the whole world. When, when is this going to happen? That's what they're asking him, and that's, they're, they're declaring that event as the beginning of a new age and the end of the previous age. So the way they're asking him the question is, what are the signs of the end of this age? Right. And so this is Matthew, right? Ages. This is in Matthew where Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so, it'll, so it will be again, you know, just before my return. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so he gives them a big speech about, he answers them by, by explaining to them, you know, these are the things that are going to happen, and he goes on into details. Um, it's interesting for me that the way they frame the question to him shows that they had an understanding of the idea of biblical ages, because they framed the question in that language. And when he comes back from the dead, when he, you know, um, he, they say to him, okay, they see him, and this is in Acts chapter 1, they see him and they say to him, okay, go, uh, Lord, are you now going to establish the kingdom of Israel? They ask him that. It's in, it's in the New Testament. And he says, well, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that God has put, you know, set up for such things. It, essentially, God, the Bible had taught, you know, the Old Testament, that God decides the times and seasons of the fall and rise of kingdoms. And so he's saying to them, look, again, that's not for you to know the time for that, but you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come over you. He, and he, he t tells them what their next step is. And we're told that not even him, nor the angels in heaven, know the exact time that God has ordained for asking his son to return to the earth. That that is a mystery that God holds close to his heart. So after he comes back from the dead and he's ascending, the final commandment that he gives, which is called the Great Commission, and it's very, a very important commandment to, to the Church and to believers, he says to them, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, he brings up the con this idea of the age. So the disciples say to him, what are the times of the end of the present age? Then when he comes back from the dead, they say, okay, is it now? Are you going to establish the kingdom now and shut down the Roman Empire and the age of empires? 
And then he then says, no, the time for that hasn't come yet. He doesn't say he's not going to do it. He says the time for that hasn't come yet. God knows when that's going to occur. Meanwhile, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out and declare me to all the nations. Remember, at this point, this is a very Jewish story. Jesus is Jewish. He's in Jerusalem. That's where he dies and comes back to life. That's where the disciples are gathered for the last Passover meal, where they receive the Holy Spirit in the same room where they have the Passover meal. They're all in Jerusalem, and they're all Jewish. And for a few decades, virtually, Christianity is going to be a Jewish movement. And now he's telling them, no, 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 you're going to go out and you're going to tell the rest of the world. So in the past 2,000 years, in this last days, which began at Pentecost, according to Peter, one of the things that has been happening is that people from all around the world, from all different nations, from all different generations of the human race, have come into the world, their souls have been born into the world, and then they have come to know who their savior and who their king is. And in this way, they have earned uh, themselves a place in the eternal kingdom which is coming. They will have a role to play in the future of the universe. And in other words, everybody, before he can come back uh, during the end times, everybody around the world has, has to have an opportunity to either accept or reject no, this, the age no? called the end times began 2,000 years ago. We have been in the end times for 2,000 years, according to the Bible. Right, right. And in this period of, in this 2,000-year period, there's a few things that are going to occur. One of them is that he will be presented to all the nations, as you're saying, and people will be given the chance to come to him or not. That's one of the things. Right. That'll happen, and a portion of the Jewish people were blinded to him. That a portion of the people from the nations, that a portion of the Gentiles, would receive sight. There's, there's kind of even, even in in this period of of waiting, where where some of the Jewish people, you know, were blinded to who he was. Um, they were still serving him in their blindness because this allowed sight to be given to a portion of the Gentiles, fulfilling the promise that God had made in the previous age to Abraham, that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's what we're seeing, that in the son of Abraham, in Jesus, you know, the Messiah, the Christ, all the families of the earth are being blessed. And so the promise that God had sown into history in the previous age is now being reaped in this final age. As All right, well, I've got to take another time out, Ali. So we'll come back and uh, we'll pick up on that point on the other side. Ali Siadatan, Think Again Productions. The end of days. More on the other side. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. So I want to uh, wrap up this discussion on the end of times before we run out of time, and and time is uh, ticking here, Ali. So let's just uh, get right to sort of the crux of the issue in terms of... So then what happens is one of the great things... It's as this whole end times, the last age of history is unfolding, 
God then begins to give us a huge amount of information about the very end of the end times, which is the transition of history from this final age to his actual kingdom that he will come and establish on the earth. This is what the Bible teaches. Often when we think about, you know, when Christians talk about, about Jesus, they go, well, you know, you've believed in him, you're going to go to heaven. But the Bible itself talks barely about, rarely, about the concept of heaven. It actually talks a lot about prophecies and promises about the land of Israel. So, the, so, so suddenly we have this period of history, which is the very end of the end times, which is the period of transition of this age into the next. And in our culture, that has been popularized as end times. So when we, when we in our culture say, let's talk about the end times, what we really are meaning is let's talk about the final end of the end times age. Right, the last seven years, right? The three yeah, and a half years of tribulation years, and Jacob's troubles. Exactly, the Jacob's troubles. And, and then the three and a half years within that, the last three and a half years of history is going to be very uh, difficult. You know, it's like that final moment of birth when something is being pushed out. So what, what are we to expect in this time of transition? Well, it is an unfolding revelation from God. He's opening our minds as we go to the details of prophecy. But so far, when you look at this period of history and you look at all the writings that talk about this period of transition from this age into the next, they all involve events in the Middle East um, and the land of Israel and Jerusalem, the city, and even the Temple Mount. And so when people started to see this around, you know, even the 17th century, but the 19th century was a big time for this, people in the Christian world said, wait a second, if this is true, then sometime in the future the Jewish people will return to this land. That's going to happen, because that's what it says right here. It was around the 19th century that people began to actually consider that. So it's very important to understand that for the longest time, that wasn't in part of the conversation of Christian thought. And as people began to, to, to see that, uh, there was lots of, you know, um, um, uh, movement in that direction, even by people who, in, in the British Empire, Christians felt that God was putting it on their heart to help out in making that happen. And, and among the Jewish people, gradually this idea of returning to that land also took, you know, steam, and it really it was the Holocaust that pushed everything over and into place. And the two world wars, one took the land away from the, the hand of the caliphate that had it, and the second world war, you know, delivered it essentially into the hands of the Jewish people. So suddenly... All of these writings that talked about this period of transition that involved the Middle East and involved Jerusalem suddenly came into focus in a very real way in the second half of the 20th century. For the first time, we could imagine that it was actually going to happen. And so that's, you know, something that people keep an eye on because there's events prophesied concerning the Middle East, and, and that's one place of interest. And there's a few other very important landmarks that we are now seeing emerge out of biblical writings as God continues to open it. The end of it, where is it all going to go, 
Well, apparently there's going to be, if you will, a third world war. There's going to be a final conflict that involves Jerusalem. There's going to be an, a, a nemesis like we haven't seen for, uh, for a long time, the famed Antichrist. He's going to come to power. He's going to enter the city of Jerusalem. There's going to be a final conflict. And it is in that, during that conflict that Jesus and his angels' armies return from the heavens, it says, with their chariots to the earth and bring peace to the world and dispel this, this war. And it says that Jesus then establishes a kingdom on the earth, and that is now the messianic kingdom, which is, you know, this, 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 this other age, where he will rule from the city of Jerusalem, where there will be a time of peace on the earth, where even contrary predators and prey will get along, that those who believed in him will receive a new and eternal body, and those who died knowing him will come back from the dead. And this is the period of a thousand years of peace, right? The millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom. The eternal body of, uh, will be given to the believers. A government will be established from the city of Jerusalem where the boundaries that God promised Abraham uh, that he would have from the east of the river Euphrates until this river in Egypt, that has never been had by, by Israel. But in Messiah's kingdom, that will be the seat of his government. There will be a temple built out of which he will rule. And he will then administer his justice and his law over all the nations from Jerusalem. And those who have come to him in this life will earn a place in that kingdom and an eternal body, as it seems that those who have not known him will continue to be born and die and live under his rule and in this age of peace, in this Sabbath of history. All of these marvelous things are laid out beforehand for us, and the ages of history are spoken in God's Word as a guide to the human race. It's powerful, I think, and incredible to look into. All right, we'll take in one final time out, come back. We'll get to a few questions on our YouTube live chat. Ali Seattle, Think Again Productions, discussing the end of days. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, Ali, I'm going to hit you with a few quick questions and uh, just give me a real quick answer if you can and then we'll get to some uh, questions here. I want to ask you about uh, this debate that rages in the Christian community uh, and depending on what, I guess, branch of Christianity uh, you're from, you have a different answer. And that's the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, that the that Bible-believing Christians, people that have accepted Jesus will be, they'll get to avoid the nastiness of the, the tri- tribulation when hell is unleashed on earth. They will be raptured up into heaven before all of that nastiness begins. What are, what are your thoughts on that quickly? I think that's an evolving thing in the way people are thinking about it, and there was a time where that was really the only answer for all the people that looked into end times, but I think that, that there's more and more doubt about that, and uh, there is definitely, the rapture is definitely a biblical doctrine. It's, uh, it's We're all going to be raptured. That's in the Bible 100%, and it's in that moment that we get our new bodies. But the timing of it is up for debate, 
I think it's, it's probably closer to actually his second coming itself rather than, than sometime before it. All right. The other one is, of course, whenever we discuss end of days, we talk about the mark of the beast. And uh, this is in Revelation where uh, you won't be able to buy or sell without a mark on your right hand or your forehand. Uh, sorry, your forehead. Uh, but if you take the mark, uh, basically, uh, that's, you know, you're damned eternally. Um, but yes. how will we know what the mark is? And if we take it inadvertently, uh, we, we don't necessarily know what it is. Well, will be, it's, will be, it's, um, it's the final world leader as to who administers it. So I think that I think that God is in communication with us through His Holy Spirit and through His angels. So when when this guy comes to power, I know there's lots of theories: is it this guy, is it that guy? But once we see him and the kind of power he is going to have, and even some of the miracles, you know, the lying signs and wonders that he's going to do. I think there'll be enough evidence that, that there'll be a huge uh, and deep uh, and universal understanding among those who have a mind for these things that this is the guy, so that's how we'll know it. And second of all, it's a very precise prophecy. You can't buy, sell, or do commerce. Well, you know, whenever someone comes and says, here, this is what you have to take, and if you don't take it, you can't do these three things, then you know that's the mark. All right. And um, if you don't take it, you starve, right? I mean, it, yeah. in other words, you have to choose. It's it's going to be really death. You'll either be persecuted, like uh, you'll have your head cut off, according to some accounts. You'll be, there's a, there's a guillotine in your future, or you will choose to take the mark and therefore you will be excluded from society and you will have to, you'll starve to death. Or you take the mark and you survive, but you're eternally damned. Yeah. No, I, I understand. Um, basically, God will provide a way for those who don't take the mark. Uh, he'll provide a way. It's like it's like he he built an ark to take people to the flood. You know, they put these guys. The king of Babylon said, "If you don't, you have to worship my statue and sacrifice to it," which is in line with this type of thing because this is about allegiance and worship. It's not about commerce. It's about allegiance and worship. And and when the uh, friends of Daniel said, no, we're not going to do that, he said, I'm going to throw you in these furnaces they had, which was very hot. And when they put them in the furnace, this angel came and protected them so that nothing happened to them. And actually the king ended up, you know, worshipping the god of Daniel. So God will provide a way. We, we we don't have to know everything. Once we get closer to it, you God will provide a way for those who will not take the mark whether it's that he will reinforce us in the spirit, so you know we'll have peace in our hearts and minds, or he will actually provide loopholes that allow us to survive and live, because it'll be very the very end of history. I think that's something that's going to happen, perhaps in the last three and a half years of of the end of the end times. So it's a very short thing, you know. I mean, look, we've had two years of COVID, right? It's it's a short thing. We'll live through it. All right. Sigma six on the YouTube live chat asks, does all uh, do you, Ali, think that the word the word replenish in Genesis one is hinting at the fact that Earth was wiped out before that? Uh, no. All right. <laughs> uh, do you want to elaborate on that just a little bit before we move on? Or? Well, the, uh, the Earth itself, it seems to have been a planet, the one that we're on. 
you know, maybe there was another planet in the solar system where Mars and Jupiter exist, where the solar, where the asteroid belt is, that was destroyed in order to for Earth to be created. And there are reasons that I can't get into that that I'm saying that. But the the planet in which we stand, its destiny and record, the six days of creation are all blessed. God says this is all good, this is all great. He introduces vegetation, so we have oxygenation. He puts the planet in orbit. Then he introduces, you know, uh, the sea life, the air life, the continental life, and finally the human life and the Adamic race. And so it's all good. We don't see any devastation. Then man leaves the garden and enters into the world and begins to set up the uh, original empires and all that. So we we don't have any point. The story doesn't have any gaps in it. Um, if there was any other destruction before the Earth itself occurred on the in the solar system, that's possible. Uh, whether other planets of the solar system were subject to something because they, you know, they were inhabited. The, some say Mars. You know, Satan lived on Mars and God destroyed it. I don't know. But Earth itself, I see that there's a direct line of history drawn for us in which there is there is no such thing as a destruction and replenishing. It, it has never occurred in the known hi- biblical All right. history. And so, and very quickly, before I, I get one more question in here, when we talk about end times and the end of days, we're not talking about the destruction of the world, right? No, it's just the end of an age. It's just the end of an age. That, I'm so glad you said that, because in the common culture, I remember I used to, you know, Armageddon, oh, that's the end of the world. No. It is the end of all that is wrong with the world, um, uh, the famine and exploitation and corruption and disease and death um, and, and, and human governments that are not as good as God's government. And even the fallen angels whose you know, chariots and UFOs people see all around the world, all of that is cleaned out. Even Satan is bound and put in chains, and he's behind the nations. He's called the prince of this world. Well, we're going to have a new prince. And so it is the end of this period of human history. Now everything has been settled. All the souls that are to know God have been born into the world. God is done, and now there's going to be a new age of peace. And I was just reading in Zechariah chapter 14, one of the last books of the Old Testament, where it talks about Jesus coming and, and, and destroying these armies that come against Jerusalem and establishing his kingdom. And then the prophet takes us into his kingdom, and it says then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, which means the armies of heaven, and to keep the Feast of Booths, one of the appointed days of God, the final appointed day in the biblical calendar of Moses, that will be activated on in his kingdom that has been hidden for that kingdom it is the feast of the ingathering that's what it's called all the nations are gathered to jerusalem to worship the king and other passages in the bible describe that kingdom as a beautiful and peaceful place where natural predators and prey live in harmony together and the child plays in the ass's nest so it's a new age of history that's all armageddon is it's the birth pangs that usher in the greatest of ages. And okay. you want to pledge allegiance to the Lord now to have an eternal place in that kingdom coming. Uh, YY Anella uh, in the YouTube live chat. How many people now alive are Nephilim or have Nephilim ancestries, and are these people able to receive salvation? Good question. I think it's deep. I think that the parable of the wheat and tares, 
which I think is addressing the Nephilim infiltration into the human world, says that the tares are so widespread among the wheat that if one is pulled out, the other will be destroyed. Like if God pulled out your granddaddy, then you might never be born. So I think that the infiltration of the Nephilim DNA is much wider spread than the idea of just the characters we meet in the Bible. And that's why one of the things that the Messiah brings to the table is a resurrected body, a new body, one whose DNA is no longer corrupted by this. So we are all able to, you know, receive the word and accept it in faith. God knows who's who. And the new body will take care of any DNA corruption. And let us remember that in the great prophecy of Isaiah about the Messiah, one of the titles given to him, he's the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, but he's also called El Gibor, which means, you know, the mighty you know, warrior. And, and that is one of the titles given to the Nephilim in Genesis 6, the Giborim. That's because it's signaling that he will even redeem us from that, uh, in his uh, destiny, in his body, in his life. Even that he will redeem, and he will become even the mightiest, uh, uh, you know, uh, of all the mighty ones, and he will redeem us of that. So we don't have to worry about who's got it, who hasn't. I think it's widespread. The point is, in him, you have a solution even to that. All right, Ali, always a pleasure. A whirlwind tour. <laughs> you got it all in uh, under an hour. Uh, brilliant. And uh, again, thinkagainproductions.com. They can screen your documentaries there. They can sign up for your newsletter and your webinars right there, thinkagainproductions.com, right? Absolutely. Sign up for the newsletter. There's a lot more coming. We're going to enter into the study of the end of time. So come and join us. Ali, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. All right, back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.